Good morning. We love God's word here, so uh, I'm going to share some of that with you now this morning. And if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Some of you might be old enough to remember when all the Elam churches from across the country used to gather together at a holiday camp for the annual conference, Butlins or Pontons of latter times. Now for some people, a week in a Butland chalet was purgatory. But I have to say, my kids loved it. But one year, somehow we managed to afford to upgrade to a deluxe chalet. And uh, when we went into the chalet, we were surprised and amused to find just about everything that could be screwed down was screwed down. <laughs> the kettle base was screwed to the worktop. The microwave was fixed to the wall. The TV was fixed to the wall, and even the handset to the TV had a cord attached to it going to the TV. But what amused us most was that on the work surface was an inventory of everything that was in the chalet, as though you could take anything away, even if you wanted to, you couldn't. But inventories can be 
good things. They tell you what you have. And it seems to me as Christians, we can be a little bit slow grasping what we have. We live sometimes as spiritual paupers instead of in the riches of Christ that we have. I mentioned a while ago that uh, we used to have a man in our church who lived like a pauper. His poor wife had to live in poverty, was not able to spend a penny. When he died, she discovered he was wealthy. He had money invested all over the place. She was amazed. Some Christians live like that, in absolute spiritual poverty, not knowing what we have in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that we have treasure within us. But before we get to the treasure, I want to uh, look at the context of what Paul is saying here. And the context is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins with therefore. He's talking about his ministry in these chapters. He's talking in this chapter especially about preaching of the gospel. The gospel, he says, is a gospel of truth that reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. Then he deals with a question many people ask. Why don't more people respond to this glorious gospel? His answer is in verse 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Please note the word God there is with a small g. The Bible does not teach a dualism. That is, that the battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, is an equal battle. It is not. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that Jesus Christ is above, has a name which is above all principalities and powers, and that his name every knee shall bow. But in this present time, Satan has a limited amount of power and status. When Satan was tempting Jesus, he took him in one of the temptations to a high mountain and showed him all the splendor of the kingdoms of the world and said, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus didn't argue with Satan about worldly kingdoms. At the Last Supper, Jesus even called Satan the prince of this world. But we need to understand that Satan's power is a usurped of power and authority. The only authority he has is the hold he has on those who follow him. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdoms of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
Benson in his commentary says, Satan is termed by the apostle here, uh, the God of this world, because he makes use of the things of this world, especially its riches and honors and pleasures and vanities, to obtain and establish his dominion over a great part of mankind and over all that continue under the power of unbelief and sin. Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But we need to understand that uh, they have complicity in this. One commentary correctly says, it doesn't mean they are innocent victims of Satan's blinding work. Satan's work upon them is not the only reason they are blinded. Satan has to work hard to keep them blinded to the glorious gospel of light and salvation in Jesus. There's a, a verse in John chapter 319 that says, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People choose to live under the power of unbelief and sin. Thomas Brooks wrote, Satan promises the best, but pays the worst. He promises honor, but pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. But we are not under Satan's authority when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. In that passage I read from Ephesians 2, it goes on to say in verse 4, but, and this word but just is a great one, because it introduces a total change in temper, tempo, uh, tempo. It says, but... Because of his great love, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The answer to the darkness is the glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in verse 6 he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now this verse takes us right back to Genesis 1, where in Genesis 1-3, God says, let there be light and there was light. He's referring right back to that. And then he's saying that the power of God's word, creative power of God's word that created light and all things, is the same power of his word that is carried in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that the gospel has power to dispel darkness and bring new life. It brings the new birth. John 3, Jesus explained that to Nicodemus. It makes us new creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Speaking about the power of the gospel, Paul writes in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. I love seeing the gospel, the power of the gospel at work. It is absolutely wonderful. Seeing darkness dispelled and light flooding people's lives. I remember one Sunday evening, a young man of about 20 with his girlfriend came into a... We used to have what we called the gospel service years ago on a Sunday evening where the gospel was preached every time. And uh, this young man... I later discovered had run away from his Christian family, rejecting their Christianity. He'd come to live in Bath uh, with his girlfriend. He'd got into drugs and lots of other bad stuff. He was in an absolute state of rebellion in darkness. He came in that night and heard the gospel, a simple gospel message preached. And that night the darkness was dispelled. The light of Jesus Christ filled his life. He committed his life to Jesus, went back to his Christian family and served for many years in the church there. Another Sunday night, a professional young man who'd come to work in a professional position in Bath was walking past the church. And uh, being lonely in a strange city, he saw the lights on and he just came in and sat at the back. That night the gospel was preached. And at the end he walked forward to give his life to Jesus Christ. Tears streaming down his face as the light of the gospel of Jesus just dispelled darkness and changed his life. And he's still serving God now in ministry in church. Paul speaks of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He speaks of the glory of God too in the face of Jesus Christ. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone with the glory of God. But that was a fading glory. Jesus came down from heaven and Colossians 1 tells us, in him dwells all the fullness of God bodily. His is not a fading glory, but the very glory of God indwelt. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ. John Piper makes a good point. He asks the, a series of questions. What is the highest and best and final good in the good news, the gospel? Is it justification by faith? Is it forgiveness of sins? Is it the removal of the wrath of God? Is it redemption from guilt and liberation from sin and slavery to sin? Is it salvation from hell? Is it entrance into heaven? Is it eternal life? All these are precious promises bought by the blood of Christ for everyone who believes in him. But they're not the highest and best and final good of the gospel. He then quotes 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6. And he says, it tells us there what the highest, best and ultimate good of the good news is, the glory of God 
in the face of Christ. This is the real glory. The gospel, you see, brings us into relationship with Christ, reconciles us to God, and in him we see and share the glory of God. But I suppose it begs the question, what is the glory of God? One writer says, glory is a hard term to define. The Bible uses different words to describe glory. One of the earliest was kabud. It means heaviness. Difficult word to define. Eventually, it came to mean honor, abundance, riches, splendor, dignity. But the word heavy is probably the best definition. Glorious feeling. The whole weight of who God really is. When the writer goes on to say, when Moses asked God in Exodus 33:18, show me your glory, he wasn't asking for a glimpse of the vault of heaven or to hear God's credentials read aloud. He was asking to see God, to see him for everything he is, to see his greatness, his splendor, his majesty, his perfect holiness, his holiness, to see God. The gospel shines light into our dark hearts and lives. And faith rises. And we're made alive, quickened, the Bible says, by the Spirit of God. Our eyes are opened, our spiritual eyes, to see the very glory of who God and what God is. More than that, the very life of Christ comes and indwells us by his Holy Spirit. Spirit. So Paul could write to, uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.16, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. All that happens when the light of the gospel shines into our hearts. But he then goes on to say, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Ever feel like a jar of clay? When we came to Bath for uh, the interview, to be interviewed for the, the position of pastor there, the soon-to-depart pastor and his wife showed us around the church manse. And it soon became aware they were far more affluent than we were. Because in the dining room was a, a cabinet with a nice glass display top. And the minister's wife pointed to Jean and I, and said, uh, that would be a really good place to display your silver. Jean and I said nothing, but when we were out of earshot going around another part of the house, Jean whispered to me, David, I've only got a silver teaspoon. <laughs> Can I just say that we are not vessels of gold or silver, but vessels of clay. You see, we're not designed for display because it's not what we are or what we have that God wants displayed. It's what he has and who he is that we are to display. You may have great talents, a commanding presence, leadership qualities, wealth, even be of noble birth. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But they're not much use in the struggle that Paul talks about. For in Ephesians 6.12 he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those things are not much good in that. We've got to have something within us that can deal with things like that. That's why Paul talks about the whole armor of God and uh, all that that contains. You see, it's not what's on the outside that counts, but what's on the inside. Even the great prophet Samuel had to learn that as all the sons of Jesse were passing for him and he was to anoint one king. He looked at their stature, their strength, their good looks, and he kept thinking to himself, surely this is the one. But God had to say to his, whisper to him, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's what's on the inside that counts. We have treasure, Paul says, on the inside. We have the light of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the word of God, the gospel of Jesus within us, and that's what counts. And God puts this treasure in jars of clay. That's the wonder. The jars of clay are jars of clay indeed. One writer says, Of God, he is almighty God, forever strong, creator of the universe, self-existent, perfect, holy, loving. I am futile, weak, lustful, bent on my own will, hateful, spiteful. He deserves thousands of angels' worship, worlds worshipping him, people singing his praise forever. I deserve an eternity separated from God forever. He is worthy of love and honor and devotion. I am certainly not. Only because of the cross am I placing my trust in Jesus' finished work am I able to do anything. D.L. Moody was a, a great evangelist um, of the 19th century. He only had what the Americans call a third grade education. Some said he murdered the English language. Once he had to speak when in England to some highly educated and posh uh, clergymen. And uh, someone recorded that he started his words with, don't never think that God don't love you for he do. <laughs> that's, that's how he spoke. Apparently, he was never ordained, never attended a Bible college, but God used him in the second half of the 1900s to shake two continents for Christ. Moldy was a clay pot, but he had something within that could make an enormous difference. It's not easy being a, a clay jar when it comes to serving God. Paul describes what a tough time he had. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Now, if you were attentive when I read it the first time, you'll notice that I missed something out there. It actually says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned, struck down, 
but not destroyed. I want to look a little closer at those four statements. One writer says, these four statements describe the true condition of believers in the world. We're not always pressured, but we often are. We're not always perplexed, but it happens more than we think. We're not, we don't always face opposition, but sometimes we do. And not every day are we struck down by the circumstances of life, but it, it happens to us all eventually. No one is exempt from these things. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Some says in Paul's mind he had a picture of the wine press where all the grapes would be crushed in the wine press. He says we are hard pressed but we are not crushed. Some, uh, I, I love the way one commentary put that. We catch it from every direction but we don't let them squeeze the life out of us. Then he says we are perplexed but not in Despair. Ever been perplexed? Don't understand what's going on? Don't know which way to turn? I've been there more times than I'd like to count. Paul himself says in Romans 8.26 that sometimes we don't even know how to pray. I like what one writer says. When we are confused, remember Jesus is not confused. Sometimes we're puzzled and perplexed by life. Sometimes we're bewildered and unsure. That's okay. We're not driven to despair because life doesn't depend on our knowledge of the big picture. When we are at our wit's end, God is just getting started. Then he says we're persecuted but not abandoned. The Greek word persecuted means to pursue as the idea of a hunter after his gain game. Everywhere Paul went, the Jewish opponents followed him, stayed on his trail, attacking his character, maligning his preaching, mocking his message, stirring up opposition. He knew what it was to be pursued. Ray Steadman says, the door of opportunity swings on the hinge of opposition. Opportunity and opposition go together. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, um, a wide door for effective work is open to me and there are many adversaries. If you set out to do anything good in this world, someone is bound to oppose you. But we're not abandoned by God. We're not deserted. We're not left to stand alone. Then finally he says we're struck down but not destroyed. J.B. Phillips paraphrases this, we may be knocked down, but we're never knocked out. When I was uh, 15 years old, a speeding car, I was on my bicycle, a speeding car hit me head on, and I was thrown into the air and temporary, temporarily blinded. But in the darkness, in that moment, I was flying through the air, I remember as clearly as though it were yesterday, crying out three words, Lord, save me. And obviously he did. Sometimes life hits us so hard, all we can do is cry out, Lord, save me. And he does. 
We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because Romans 8.37 says, We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. He says, Paul says in verse 10, we, are, we have this treasure in jars of clay, and I'm winding up now, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. That, in verse 7, it said, this, that this all-surpassing power can be seen to be from God and not from us. Let me just conclude with this. I expect in your fridge or in your cupboard you've got jars with good things in and when you put it back you put the lid securely on to keep the contents in and unwanted things out. That's not how we are created to be. We're not to have this treasure within and hold on to it. It's not ours to hold on to. We're meant to let the light shine. Did you know, I noticed uh, recently that the Mendip transmitter at uh, that tall thing on the top of the hill there, um, at night when it's lit up, it's clearly visible from odd down in Bath, all that way away. I've seen it several times as I've gone out on the Radstock Road recently. I want to ask you a question. Can those around you and can those around me see the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ shining through us? One other thought. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't on your spiritual journey come to that place yet where you've experienced that light of the gospel of Jesus Christ bringing God near to you and you near to God and bringing forgiveness from sin and reconciliation to God you can experience that this morning the Bible says about Jesus as many has received him to them he gave the authority to become the children of God you've just got to receive Christ and turn and follow him Let's just pray together. Father God, we thank you that you've put your treasure in such jars of clay as us. Lord, that's amazing. We pray you help us, Lord, to let your gospel and all that it contains shine through us to those in darkness around us. Now, can I just uh, say before I continue my prayer, if you this morning want to receive Christ and follow him, and just pray in your heart right now, Lord Jesus Christ, I turn from my sin to follow you. I open my life to you. Please come in and reconcile me to God. A simple prayer like that I prayed when I was about 12 years old changed my life. It can be the same for you today. Just do one other thing. If you prayed that prayer, tell someone here, the pastor or the, uh, Jason, the assistant pastor, or, or one of us that you prayed that prayer. That's so important. Lord, I just pray now that you will bless your word to our hearts in Jesus' name.